News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, anyone who has fought cancer or has a loved one who has fought cancer knows what a tough road that is. People need support and they need inspiration from their family and friends to keep going. Now, this week, you may have heard that Minister of Post-Secondary Education and former Finance Minister Selena Robinson is once again battling cancer. She was first diagnosed back in 2006. She successfully beat it then. But now that gastrointestinal tumor has returned and we are all sure that she is going to beat this again. So she gets asked a lot how people can help her or support. Well, that's what Rob Shaw asked her, the political correspondent for Czech News and, of course, friend of our show here, uh, wanted to support Minister Robinson. So let's find out what she told him. Rob is with us this morning. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. What did you rope yourself into here? <laughs> I I asked the minister, because uh, look, hey, everyone loves Selena Robinson. She's one of those people around the legislature that if you're in a grumpy mood and sometimes I can be in a bit of a grumpy mood, you, you, you know, doing, I, it's, it's hard to believe, but yes, uh, she'll come up to you and say, what's your problem? Come on, put a smile on your face, which I mean is pretty rare in, in the building. And so when she announced that she had, uh, had cancer return, you know, I, like a lot of people went up and said, is there anything I can do? And she said, well, why don't you join my team and ride on the tour de cure. And I said, (laughs) you were like, "Uh, okay. Okay. But you said yes. I said, yes. The last time I was on a bike, I think I was 10 years old. I probably had a teenage mutant Ninja Turtles shirt on and a fanny pack with a Uh game boy tucked into it. And there was like (laughs) tassels on the bike. Wow. You're really painting a picture here, Rob. Look at, I know it's early in the morning. I apologize uh, for people, but I wanted to, I wanted to talk to you about this because I know it is it is unusual for you to do that, right? To get on this bike and do this, but you're committed to doing this. And I felt if we could support you, we want to help you raise money for this great cause because that's what you're doing now. Yeah, I mean, it's a tour. The tour to cure raises money for the BC Cancer Foundation that advances research in cancer. It's the largest cycling fundraiser, uh, and it happens in August. But in order to get there uh, for this ride that goes from Cloverdale to Hope. Uh, you have to start training. And so I've been confronted with this training schedule that is uh, designed to turn me from a kind of very soft urban hipster to a grizzled cycling <laughs> expert, which is going to really disrupt my moisturizing regime, but I, I'm going to give it a shot. And so, <laughs> so I'm brave. doing things. Yeah, I'm doing things like uh, researching stretchy pants that that have uh kind of like padding on the butt can you, can you yeah say they're butt called on the bike radio? shorts yes and they're called bike shorts Rob. Yeah. and many people Apparently, are familiar with these i didn't even know they existed and uh I, all the subculture of cycling which let's be honest here you know in victoria all the guys cycle Everybody except for cycled. you up until now except for me i kind of you know i i i count run counter to that and so this is a little bit outside of my comfort zone, uh, and it's a little bit weird for me. But the more that I learn about this ride, and the more that I learn about Selena Robinson, who's this is her 14th year doing it. She's raised three quarters of a million dollars. What? Uh, she has a team that she's put together uh, that, that does it sort of reliably every year. And it's a very sort of, they sing and they chant and they, all sorts of cool stuff. So the more that I learn about it, the more I think uh, how neat an experience it is going to be. But, you know, like, I think 
the the fun part of an event like this is it pushes you out of your comfort zone and reminds yes. you, you know, that people's journey uh, and the the journey through cancer, but also the way it affects their lives is so much more difficult than anything you could put yourself through. Even though the <laughs> chances is... that I crash my bike are very, very high at this point. Very high. <laughs> well, we're going to try to help you out with this. So uh, we would love to get people involved and help you donate, Rob. And because obviously this is a great idea. This is a great, um, a great cause to do this. So how can we help? Where can we donate? Sure. Well, there's a link uh, on my Twitter profile. Um, and the money goes to the, the Cancer Foundation and Selena Robinson's team. Uh, as well. But you can also um, just go to the Tour to Cure website and you can go to tourdecure.ca slash fundraiser slash Rob Shaw. But, you know, the link is right there if you look me up on Twitter uh, and you can go. And I, it's a great cause. And I promise to post very embarrassing updates uh, on my as I learn <laughs> how to do things like tackle chafing and uh, all sorts of other things that I didn't realize are part of this. Uh, you have to put your your shoes into into like clips in the bike or something. Oh boy, I, I, you are! I'm loving this. So yes, you can count on our support on this one, Rob. Uh, let's see if we can get you uh, get Selena Robinson to have a record breaking year because she got you to sign on. Listen, thanks for doing this and good luck. Okay. Okay, thanks for having me on. That is Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech News, but now also checking out the Tour de Cure. So go online. You can just Google it, Tour de Cure Rob Shaw, and you can find ways to help him out with this. This is Mornings with Simi. Any trip to the grocery store these days involves a bit of sticker shock, doesn't it? It doesn't matter where you go. You will undoubtedly look at some item and think, oh, that was way cheaper a year ago. I have had this happen to me so many times in the last few weeks. Now, of course, grocery stores will say they have no choice but to raise prices. We also know, though, that some of them have been making excellent profits during this time. So it is that situation that has led a parliamentary committee in Ottawa to try and ask some tough questions of the people who run the biggest grocery store chains in the country. Now, this committee, which consists of Liberal, Conservative, NDP and Bloc Québécois members, unanimously agreed this week to summon the president and CEOs of the three biggest grocery chains to come and testify before them. NDP MP for Cowichan Malahat Langford is Alistair McGregor, and he put forward that motion. Our producer, Bianca Rego, had a chance to speak with him about why he did that. Invitations were sent out when we began this study, and the grocery stores uh, sent their vice president. Um, I guess for me, I think that because uh, so many Canadians have a crisis of confidence and trust in the grocery sector, I mean, they, they keep on seeing rising food prices week in, week out. I think in that context, it's important for uh, leaders to step up. And uh, these are the leaders of their respective companies for Loblaws, for Metro and Empire. And I, I believe it's important for them to come and explain themselves. They, they have a lot of influence over the internal direction and profit-making motives of, of their company. So that's, uh, that's why I think they should appear. Okay, so that's NDP MP Alistair McGregor on the Parliamentary Committee that is investigating high grocery store prices along with big grocery store profits. Uh, he was speaking with our producer, Bianca Rego. He also talked about how widespread support is for this idea. 
we have received evidence at our committee, and, and I think it's important to note, too, that the motion that inv- is going to summon them before the committee was passed unanimously. So uh, all of my colleagues from all political parties support this initiative. Um, you know, we have seen evidence that uh, during the last three years over the pandemic, uh, their profits uh, have doubled and their margins are incredibly good right now. And this is happening at a time when food prices are going up. So I think this is really just trying to find ways, not only from the CEOs appearing, but also economists and other people involved in the sector to have a a discussion on, you know, what's leading to this food price inflation? What are some of the measures that we can bring about to try and tackle it effectively? Uh, Are those things like a stronger competition bureau uh, do we need to look at things like an excess profits tax, given the the massive increase in their profits? Um, I mean, what I think your listeners have to understand is that about 80% of the Canadian grocery market is controlled by a select few companies. And so we also want to look at questions of whether they are unfairly using their market dominance to really further their own, in, own interests. And at a time when so many Canadians are struggling to put food on the table for their families. All right, that's NDP MP Alistair McGregor. They are digging into big grocery store profits along with high grocery store prices. And the question for you, for me, for really all Canadians is, what is going to happen as a result of all this? Parliamentary uh, committees are, first of all, a great way to shine a spotlight on this issue. Uh, so it's, it's making more Canadians aware, aware that this thing is going on. And uh, the way of enforcing more accountability, I mean, I'm not going to have uh, any uh, control over their internal affairs, but what I can do as a policymaker is look at options like a stronger competition bureau. Does it need more resources and a better mandate? Uh, But also to start, I think, a pretty frank conversation about things like an excess profits tax. Um, You know, it's not just the grocery sector. I mean, if if you look at the oil and gas sector, their net profits, Uh, since 2019, have gone up 1,011%. And that, in my view, is having a huge impact on the affordability that uh, issues that many Canadian families are experiencing. So, you know, it's really just trying to make life fairer for, for everyday families out there who are struggling with the cost of food, with the cost of rent, uh, and with transportation. Okay, and we all can sympathize with that. That is, I think, we're all in that kind of boat right now. So this parliamentary committee is hoping to hear directly from the president and CEOs of these grocery store companies, the three largest grocery store chains in Canada. They want to ask about why you're charging people more money and at the same time raking in excellent profits. And one other thing that has been emphasized here, that really this is because of you. This is because the public has been asking for answers. This issue, since we launched it, has uh, garnered a tremendous amount of interest from coast to coast to coast. And I think uh, that is because, uh, you know, Canadians go shopping for groceries at least once a week. So, and, and food, you know, it, this is not just a luxury item. People need food. Everyone needs to eat. And so when you're going in to the grocery store and you're making those difficult choices and you're seeing the astronomical increase in prices, that really hits home for people. Uh, and I think, um, you know, we led the way on this, my NDP colleagues and I, but I think, you know, other political parties have felt the public and political pressure of this moment. And that's why 
you saw unanimous votes, not only in the House of Commons, but at the Agriculture Committee, both to start the study and uh, to summon CEOs. See, that's pretty significant. When you can get these major parties, you got the Liberals and the Conservatives and the NDP and the Bloc Québécois unanimously agreeing that they need more information from these grocery store companies, then yeah, they are onto something with that. And that is Alistair McGregor, the NDP MP who put forward the motion, unanimously agreed on, to hear from the president and CEOs of these companies. You know what happens when you go to the grocery store these days. You're making choices. I found this happened really, I thought, hit me hard. I've been doing little grocery shops, I think, over the last little while, but I had to do a big grocery shop on the weekend, and that's when you find you're really making those decisions. You kind of hold it in your hand, and you look at it and go, do I need this? No. Is there a different version of this that I can get or something different? That's when you start to make those hard choices. And I'm wondering what kind of choices you have been making at the grocery store. I'm really leaning into the pantry stuff, right? Trying harder to just make everything from things that I have in my pantry or things that I can put in my pantry. And that, you know, whether it's fresh, frozen, or in your pantry, I think is a choice that a lot of people are doing right now. So how has this impacted your grocery shopping or your uh, dinner making, however it is you're dealing with these high grocery store prices? Let me know, simi at cknw.com. Maybe you've got some tips. This is Mornings with Simi. Feels like for the entire time that the single-use cup fee was in effect for the past year here in Vancouver, it was controversial. Talk about it. People got themselves really worked up. Well, last night, the decision was made by a vote of 6-3 to three to put this to an end, to repeal this 13-month single-use cup fee. But let's break it all down and find out exactly what this means. Joining us now is ABC Vancouver City Councillor Rebecca Bly. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me. So is this the end of the bag fee and the cup fee? This is the end of the cup fee. Um, the the single-use cup fee is what we repealed last night. Okay, so does that mean the bag fee is still there? The bag fee is still in place. It was a separate... Um, uh, sort of, It's a separate bylaw change um, that uh, was not addressed in the motion last night. Okay, so this is the cup fee then. So wh- right. why why did you feel it was important to repeal this? So we had heard uh, and have been hearing, as you said, for 13 months, really since the onset, um, that this uh, fee had a number of unintended consequences, let's say, um, that were um, negatively affecting uh, on many levels. Uh, for example, um, frontline business workers, particularly coming out of COVID last year, but ongoing through the entire year, were dealing with a lot of uh, negative interactions with their customers, trying to explain what the speed was all about. Um, and in the outset, it was um, negatively impacting low-income folks who were getting, let's say, like a free coffee voucher for McDonald's or Tim Hortons or a place like that, and then would go to collect it and would have to pay the 25-cent fee. Um, generally speaking, um, people have found that they're getting charged the fee, even though they get the reusable cups, so they're having to um, make sure that that fee's not on there, and even in instances having to try and get refunds. It's just, there's so many, um, and, and then of course, at the time, people were not even allowed to bring their reusable cups, right. or find themselves in situations where they can't bring a reusable cup, like uh, you know, arenas or the PE or bubble tea or blizzards. I mean, the list goes on. So, 
Um, there were uh, many, many, many sort of pain points with this um, policy. I moved to repeal last year at this time, in fact, um, recognizing right away that this was not going to be a good policy for our city. And it failed six to five. So I was very glad to get the support last night. Okay, so this is going to be gone. Is it gone right away? Unfortunately, the way um, sort of the legislative um, uh, process works, we've moved the motion. So now staff have the direction to repeal the bylaw. Of course, they have to come back then to council on a scheduled council meeting to have um, us pass that bylaw change. And then it comes into effect. Um, We've put a date of June 1st. I anticipate it's going to come forward much sooner than that. But we gave some window of time. Of course, we've got to give businesses a chance to also adjust their operations and be uh, and working with businesses to make sure that they can do that quickly um, and efficiently and update their systems. Okay, I know the idea behind it was to try to make a difference, right, with all these disposable items. I think lots of people would like to do that. Are there other things that, you know, perhaps council will look at at this point? Because we also heard, I know, at that council meeting this week that we are behind on achieving some of those climate targets, aren't we? Absolutely. And many of those are related to um, reducing our, our greenhouse gas emissions. So, you know, um, in, in, in buildings and um, vehicle emissions accounts for um, over 85 percent of, of what those climate targets really um, are setting out to achieve. And, and it's very important that we stay focused there. Um, waste is about three percent and then single cop um, waste um, of that 3% is even a sm- smaller amount. So I think really what we're looking at here is how can we reduce waste? We absolutely need to recognize the fact that we have 80 million single-use cups going into our landfill. They are recyclable. A lot of people don't know that. But, of course, that means you need to sort of pack it home and, and put it in a blue bin. Um, I, I'd like to see us working more with Recycle BC and uh, return it to be able to put a $0.05, cent, um, potentially a $0.05 cent return it fee type like like. like a pop can um, on these cups so that they can be collected and uh, returned. And we know that um, there are excellent programs like the Binners Project in the city of Vancouver um, that support uh, income for low-income folks, so it gives them some employment. Um, There's there's lots of things that we can be doing. Um, And, of course, partnering with our businesses um, to to create change with uh, their customers. So, you know, there are coffee companies that have been providing a 10-cent discount um, if you bring your own cup uh, for many, many, many years. We should be promoting more programs like that. I don't think that um, sort of a top-down stick approach with a, with a fee inspires people to change their behavior. It actually, I think, inspires resignation to say, oh, well, everything in Vancouver is more expensive, even a cup of coffee. And that was really the problem we were seeing not to mention, um, we heard from Restaurant Canada at the at the meeting last night, and um, takeout delivery apps account for thirty seven percent of business um, in restaurants across our city. So, so takeout options and delivery options are actually going up. So, um, we need to recognize that we, with apps and and coming out of COVID, people are still. Um, ordering takeout and not able to use a reusable cup. So I think we need to be promoting and and encouraging more reusable cup programs, but we don't need the bylaw fee 
to make that happen. So this conversation is not over in the sense that we've got to keep our eye on policy that can actually reduce waste. Um, but we also have to recognize when something is harming um, the affordability across the city and generally speaking, um, making life more difficult for both businesses and residents and, and pivot away from those types of policies and find something more effective. Well, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Thanks so much, Timmy. That is Rebecca Bly, a Vancouver City Councillor for ABC, talking about the motion she brought forward to repeal the that 13-month, you know, mandatory 25-cent single-use cup fee that was in place. It was very controversial. That has now been done, and it sounds like uh, it will be gone no later than June the 1st. So very soon, that will no longer be a thing. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Can we save old growth forests and still support forestry jobs in this province? Well, that's the tightrope that the province is trying to walk right now. And there is more money to try and do that. So let's find out more about that. Joining us now is BC Forest Minister Bruce Ralston. Thank you for joining us. Great. Great to be invited, Simi. Please tell me about this announcement that happened yesterday. So there's more support coming, but for what? Well, um, the uh, previous forest minister initiated uh, a program to uh, what's called defer uh, old-growth logging. There's 3.5 million hectares already deferred, and we've deferred another 2.1 million. So that, I think, if, you, if you're thinking about it as in terms of an analogy, uh, Ireland is about 6 million hectares, the, the entire island of, uh, of uh uh, so it, it, it's a big it's a big area, um, but certainly what uh, British Columbians recognize is that uh, forestry is a, is a foundational industry here. One writer referred to it decades ago as as green gold. It's been important for our economic future, but increasingly people uh, sense the importance and have actually demanded that uh, we recognize other values other than economic ones. So the importance of forest for biodiversity, for wildlife, for tourism, for conservation. All of those values are, are important. And that's uh, what uh, our report on the uh, strategic report on old growth uh, set out, the, the path forward, which is really a fundamental shift in the way in which we, we manage forests here in British Columbia. And there are good reasons to do that, uh, because particularly in the interior, um, what's called the annual allowable cut that's set by an independent officer. That is the, the amount that any, uh, any holder of, a, of the right permits can, can cut is coming down steadily. That's due to uh, the pine beetle epidemic over many years. And also, I think everyone in British Columbia is familiar with the, the wildfire seasons that we've had recently. And that, that's burned up uh, a lot of the potential uh, area of the forest for other activities. So, so that's that's the, the those are the steps that we're taking for, uh, forward. Uh, First Nations are I- integrally involved in in this process, and what we announced, uh, uh, Premier and I announced uh, yesterday, is uh, new steps to uh, involve uh, a planning process. We call it forest landscape planning, um, which uh, are community focused planning tables. They're uh, previously, the plans were simply submitted by the forest company. This, these plans will be uh, uh, put together by uh, working together at, at uh, negotiation tables with the First Nations, uh, the companies, uh, the unions, and their uh, the representatives of the workers, including unions, and communities, municipal governments, and regional districts. So the idea is to have a regionally focused uh, 
a planning process that uh, gets results and gets certainty. Some areas will be for conservation, some will be for um, potential logging, and some will be uh, mixed use. Okay, so along with that, though, there was also more money uh, to help fund manufacturing jobs. So h- mm-hmm. how, what about those jobs and where are they coming from? If there's less, less you know, lumber for them to work with, what are those jobs going to be? That's, that, that's a great question. What we're talking about and, uh, is to get more value from every log. But people talk about secondary manufacturing, and sometimes people, it's not clear what that is. But in the Fraser Valley, the extended Fraser Valley, that is all the way up to Hope, about 45% of the jobs in the forest industry take place. And what those manufacturing plants do is uh, their specialty cedar, whether it's siding, uh, shakes, shingles, um, whether it's veneer, plywood. Uh, I toured a, a, a plant in Amistice Island. They, they create veneer. That's, you peel the log like you would peel a carrot and cut it up. Uh, it comes out very wet. They ship it over to Amistice Island where they have uh, dryers, and then they create 16 different types of wood, which they make they use to make into plywood. That's what we call value added, and uh, that creates more jobs than simply uh, cutting the log and uh, maybe slicing it into two by fours, which is an important part of the industry, admittedly, and shipped generally to the states. But so we're we've taken a number of measures to, and it's 180 million dollars in the fund to help those industries adjust. Uh, maybe buy the new uh, equipment that they need um, to a- a- add an extra shift uh, of uh, to uh, to create more value from every log that, that that's taken down. And do you believe that jobs can be expanded in that way? Like we talk about jobs being lost in the forestry sector, but can we help build the sector with this? Uh, well, in the secondary manufacturing sector, the, these are companies that. They don't have what's called tenure. That is the right to their own, the, the crown land that they own, that they have the exclusive right to log on. They buy their logs uh, through the BC timber sales, which is a market process. So they don't. They have to go out and buy those. What we have said is that we're going to guarantee at least ten percent of the sales from the crown agency, the BC timber sales, to the secondary men, and there'll be some verification and audit to make sure that people aren't uh, skewing the process. That's a first step. Uh, Previously, I think in the 90s, it was 20%. So we've taken a first step here, but I'm optimistic. And that announcement was very enthusiastically received by the value-added sector. A lot of them came out from some distance to to, uh, celebrate uh, at the announcement. And so that's why we're expanding that sector, because basically uh, I'm convinced, and the advice that I've got is that that will create more jobs uh, uh, here and, and particularly in the uh, extended lower mainland. The logging is done generally uh, elsewhere in the province, uh, uh, but and the, and the results, the, the timber is shipped to the, the value-added manufacturers, but there are value-added manufacturers elsewhere in the province too. Right. Can we build that value-added manufacturing in those communities that are perhaps also worried about losing their jobs? Uh, I think that's uh, that's that, that's that's possible, um, but what, what I'm uh, it, it, the the investment required to establish a, a new plant is uh, is is uh, is a big challenge. So the the fund focuses on 180 million focuses on uh, improvements to existing plants largely. I think uh, 
uh, it's up to $10 million, or t- fully 20% of the capital that they would have to invest. So it's a, it's a, uh, I think, a, a, a well-crafted, generous uh, 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 fund for uh, enhancing the existing value-added manufacturers. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. Great. Thanks very much, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, this morning we are going to talk about something called biomanufacturing. And there is a sector here in BC that is growing, that is also now getting more support. So we thought, let's learn about it. Wendy Hurlbut joins us now, uh, President and CEO of Life Scientists BC. Wendy, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So what is biomanufacturing? Um, biomanufacturing is uh, the process. It's essentially manufacturing of bioproducts. So could be therapeutics. Um, primarily, that's what it is, or drugs. But there are certain types of medical devices that are combine, combined with therapeutics. Um, so think of it as ma- manufacturing of products for uh, the health system. Okay. And this is a growing sector here in BC? A significantly growing sector. Um, and, you know, one that um, was growing prior to the pandemic, but certainly the pandemic um, increased uh, the process, as, as many of your listeners would know. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about Canada's inability to produce our own vaccines and the investment in biomanufacturing that has happened in, for, in numerous companies across the country really is in order to produce um, vaccines and develop that capacity that we will be able to be more sufficient in the future um, okay. in obtaining these products. Okay, so how do we ramp that up? What's going on? Um, well, there's lots to ramp up. Thankfully, we have... Um, in some organizations in uh, NBC and across the country, we actually have products that historically um, would have been manufactured overseas. And so we're building up the infrastructure. So that means buildings and equipment um, to build out manufacturing facilities. And of course, those facilities need people. Ah, okay. So what does it take to get involved in this sector? Um, well, actually, we just recently had um, uh, Career Connect Day, which is the largest life sciences career-focused event a couple of weeks ago. And there is lots um, of opportunities, whether you're a scientist or want to work in HR or communications or investor relations. Um, you know, really, it's a case of um, putting yourself forward <clears throat> and learning about the sector and then um, wanting to pursue a career. But specifically, as it relates to biomanufacturing, um, typically, those are people that either have manufacturing experience or have come up through a science stream. But it really, you know, it could be people early stage in their career that are interested. Um, and we made an, an announcement earlier this week where um, the BC government and the federal co- government have come together to produce a national, to develop a national biomanufacturing training center housed at BCIT's Richmond campus. This, it's interesting, Wendy, because we always hear about how the tech sector is, you know, booming here in BC. Are there reasons why that is? Like, why is BC a good place for biomanufacturing to expand? Well, for the life sciences sector, um, you know, it always starts with world-class science. And we have amazing academic and research institutions that have a long track record of um, of producing and discovering um, products that ultimately then can get scaled into the healthcare system. So this this is an industry that um, you know for the last twenty plus years has been um, really discovering amazing things that really saw their light over the last 
couple of years. And we're a very strong antibody hub. Um, we've got 20 plus years of uh, a big track record in antibodies. And so we're at the ready to start producing those here. There are many companies that are doing that. And then, of course, mRNA vaccines, BC, played a significant role in um, in producing lipid nanoparticles and the components for the mRNA vaccines. So what we're trying to do here is ramp up the biomanufacturing so that we can do the production in BC. Uh, we can train the people so that we can fill the jobs. It's estimated that there's going to be 16,000 employees required in, banu- in biomanufacturing um, by 2029. And so we really need to make sure that we're training the people for the jobs of the t- today, but also the jobs of tomorrow. Okay, so how soon will this center be up and running? Um, well, the nice thing is we're, we're moving into a facility that is already built out. So the shell is there. And then now we need to um, build the equipment inside. So we're hoping that it's going to be ready in 2023 uh, by the end of this year, December, with the in hands-on training starting in the spring of 2024. There are numerous biomanufacturing courses that people can take online in the interim. Okay, so this sounds like it's a, it's very promising. Is this for anybody, or is there any kind of background that you have to have for this? Well, it, as I said earlier, it's, it really depends. I mean, certainly there, uh, the way the way the industry looks at it is there's new skilling, reskilling, and upskilling. So there are people working today in this field that may want to go and upskill. Um, there may there may be people that are saying this is a career that I want to pursue. I know it's it's um, growing. So the best thing to do is look at BCIT, which is where this is going to be housed, and um, you'll be people will be able to find out what the courses are over the next little while. Um, you know there will be degree programs, there will be professional development programs, and there will be single courses for for upskilling and learning specific aspects of biomanufacturing that will eventually be offered. Wow, this, is there um, a competitive nature when it comes to this industry? Is like, are, are other areas across Canada also trying to build this out? Absolutely. Um, we have um, a training centre also in PEI, um, and then there is one that is getting built out in, in Quebec. Um, and while, while it is competitive, I would look at this as a rising tide with cell boats. There are way more jobs than skilled people in this particular field right now. So collectively in Canada, us all doubling down to um, provide the opportunities for people that want to pursue a career in this area is a good thing. Okay. Wendy, where can people find more information? They can come to our website. They can go, which is uh, www.lifesciencesbc.ca. They could also go to BCIT's website or um, CASEL, which is the Canadian Association of Skills and Training for Life Sciences, has a lot of information on the courses. Perfect. They can also contact us directly and we can help them. Okay, sounds good. Thank you, Wendy. Thank you very much. Thanks for the opportunity. Well, that's Wendy Herbert, who's the president and CEO of Life Scientists BC, talking about biomanufacturing. There's a new something like seven plus million dollar life sciences center that is going to be located at BCIT that is getting underway. And there is the aim to build a local talent pool. So there are opportunities out there for lots of people. This is Mornings with Simi. 
A few weeks ago, we talked about an organization called Ethos Lab and the work that they are doing in the community to help inspire kids from all communities to get involved in tech. Well, this morning, we're going to get more specific. We want to hear about the results of all of this work. And boy, are there ever results to talk about. Uh, Joining us now is Anthony Ogundele, who's founder of Ethos Lab. Thank you so much for being back with us. Thank you so much for having me again. Okay, so I want to talk about what you've got going on here because you sounded very busy the last time we talked to you, but now you sound even busier. What's going on? Yeah, it's really exciting. This is our first annual Black Futures Month Innovation Summit. It consists of an evening event that's happening tonight um, at Emily Carr uh, University. And on the second day, we are doing teacher training, um, so teaching how uh, teaching teachers how to um, incorporate emerging technology and inclusion in classrooms. And then we also have, we've also invited 50 young people from across the region to do a blackathon. Um, so it's two days that are going to be chock full of a ton of activities. What's a blackathon? Um, it's a mix between black history and hackathon. Um, so what the young people are going to be doing is hacking an innovation in black history. So for example, this, uh, the traffic light was created by uh, a black I- inventor. So the young people would take an invention like that and they'd have to hack it with a hack it um, just with a new or future co- within a future context. Um, that's not the invention that they're going to be hacking tomorrow. Um, that's going to be a surprise when the hackers arrive. Okay, this sounds like you're making it super fun for kids. Yeah, I mean, it's a really great way to learn about black history. So often it's in textbooks. Or um, maybe it's an, a lecture or a conversation. This is this is hands on. We're really understanding what were the problems that these black inventors were trying to solve, um, and then bringing the young people through that innovation thought process to think about how they re- recreate it for um, this current context. Antonio, can you give us an idea of how you must have had some special moments? watching this kind of unfold, how important has it been to you to see that happen, to see kind of that magic, right, with, with when a child engages? Yeah, it's always amazing, especially for um, the demographic that we're targeting in terms of Black youth, girls, and just young people that don't see or feel them, um, themselves as part of the science, technology, engineering, art, or math fields. Um, when it's the aha, like I'm able to do it, Um, When I hear the stories about them going off on their own and working on their own projects um, based on what they learned or it inspires a new way of thinking or inspires some of their art, it really is rewarding, not just for myself, but but also my team Um, and hearing it from their parents as well. It's it's been it's been amazing. So what happens with these kids once you get them involved? What kind of track are they on then? How does that change things for them? Yeah, I think with a lot of different programs, it's like how many kids can you impact at kind of at one time, but we're really about um, building a community. Um, so young people that are part of Ethos Lab, so they come to the Blackathon, um, they're now able to you know, begin to access our other our camps um, that we're going to be offering later on this year. Um, but we really meet them where they're at. Um, we provide them with different opportunities from employment uh, to mentorship. Um, to just really a place where they're able to come in, connect, and create whatever they have in their imagination. So um, our mandate is uh, is around supporting them towards pathways of post-secondary education, um, and as well as exposing them to future careers. Um, and I think we've been really successful in being able to open the young people's eyes to different possibilities, and we're just getting started. Okay, so what are some of the innovations that are going to be showcased? 
Yeah, so uh, we have a, a keynote uh, speaker who's coming today, um, and his name is Will Selvis. And really, um, he's going to be showcasing his work in immersive technologies, as well as sharing some conversations around artificial intelligence. Um, so he's our, our key panelist, but we'll also have young people sharing um, what they've created within the Ethos Lab community and some thoughts from those that are also part of the education space on, on what they're seeing and, and, and why it's important for young people to really think about themselves as uh, innovators. Uh, we'll also have a marketplace, which will be full of entrepreneurs, uh, as well as power boxing, which is will be focusing on augmented reality um, that will be showcasing their work, uh, as well as we, we are um, really focus again on emerging technology. So a lot of our augmented reality, there'd be a lot of augmented reality, virtual reality um, that uh, anyone who comes in today will be able to interact with um, and see and experience. And, and the young people will tell them all about um, their experiences in creating these works. That's the big thing right now, isn't it? Isn't it the whole augmented reality? Hello? Hi, can you hear me? Uh, yeah, I can hear you. Okay, good. Uh, so that, that's the big thing right now, isn't it? Augmented reality? Um, I mean, the big conversation actually right now is artificial intelligence um, and the role that it's playing in impacting the written word through ChatGPT to um, Dolly, where you're able to create prompts and it's really um, impacting the way art is created. Um, and it's also impacting artists that have existing art and how it's, be, uh, it's either being stolen and not credited um, and creating new, new um, uh kind of pictures or, right. or creations. So um, I'd say AI is the really big thing, but again, we're really focused, again, emerging technology incorporates artificial intelligence, virtual reality, um, augmented reality, um, and, and 3D modeling, avatars, things like that, really just trying to create, um, you know, f- leaders who are able right. to, to be successful in the future. Antonia, do you find that kids just quite naturally want to push the envelope? I think that kids are naturally extremely curious. Um, I, I don't know. I come from, uh, you know, an uh, immigrant background where asking the question why was not allowed necessarily enough. Um, and so, but what I'm seeing now is that kids are asking so many more questions. The world is changing faster than ever. Um, and, and, I mean, we're, we're living in a world where um, my daughter, who's 15, um, is actually, you know, being asked to to write her essays, uh, handwritten now because of ChatGPT. Really, that's able to produce um, essays just from prompts. So we're they're in a completely they're going to have a completely different reality within the next five years. So the careers of today are going to be uh, the careers of tomorrow are going to be very different from what we understand them to be today. That is so fascinating. Okay, so where can people get more information? Yeah, they can go to www.ethoslab.ca and they can check out our website. The event tonight is sold out. There is a wait list. The Blackathon is also sold out. There is a wait list. Um, and the teacher <laughs> training is sold out, but there's no wait list. So, um, but you can see, you'll be able to follow us on social media to see what's happening. And this is also our big push uh, for our fundraiser. Um, every year, Black Futures Month, it's our 100. We try and raise $100,000 in 100 days to support these programs. So there is space and opportunity for people to give and contribute to the program, either in volunteering their time or also um, if they're able to support a young person to access the programming. All right. Sounds good. Best of luck. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.